I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times on Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending August 21st. In this episode, when did consumer electronics become so user-unfriendly? A discussion on how the consumer electronics sector got sucked into the internet things and lost its soul. Also, the Hot Chips Conference was this week. Intel kicked off its comeback tour, and a bunch of companies showed off new machine learning architectures. Some deep wonkitude with Tyrius Research Analyst Kevin Crewell. EE Times has a long slate of new columnists. You've heard from a few of them on this podcast. Michael Kirshner, for example, writes a column called Closing the Loop, which examines the circular economy. Uh, He might forgive me for simplifying the subject by calling it green electronics engineering. And it's not perfectly accurate to say that cars are becoming computers on wheels, but cars are kind of becoming computers on wheels. Aguil Huliuson and Colin Barnden both do columns on the subject for us. Both have also appeared on previous episodes of the weekly briefing. Another of our new columns is on consumer electronics. It's called Living with Tech, and it's about just that. Not just about the products themselves, but about the products we bring into our lives and how we interact with them. They're written by veteran journalist Rebecca Day. She's written Living with Tech columns for us about the new ways we're using personal technology to get through the pandemic about video streaming services, and about so-called smart home electronics. Often enough, when she tries to use new technology, things seem to go a little awry. Rebecca's columns always set off conversations between me and my EE Times colleague Junko Yoshida about how consumer electronics devices are just so hard to deal with these days. In fact, Junko was the one who encouraged me to talk about my epic failure to figure out how to watch a virtual reality movie in our podcast last week. The two of us realized, hey, we've got plenty to complain about on the air. We tried to entice Rebecca onto the show, but she keeps begging off. I'm a huge, you know, fan of Rebecca Day. And um, it's not like she's just ranting, right? She actually tries, bless her heart, she <laughs> buys all those new equipment, she subscribes to all these new services, she tried to, you know, build the smart home, she tried to use the smart blind, you know, blinds in the room so that it automatically, you know, uh, coming down just about the time that sun hit and blinds her computer. So she is very practical, but also she's an enthusiast. And yet, She has so much problems and that resonates Mm -hmm. with me. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not like Rebecca, you know, I don't even want to (laughs) try in many times because I, you know, it's sort of like on a Christmas day, you get the new stuff, you know, in a big family gathering, somebody in the family gets some electronics product and, uh, you know, for the next two hours, it's going to be a hell because you've got to look at you. Once you open that thing, the kid can't set it up. And everybody looks at me like, Junko, you work for EE Times. You can fix this. Like, 
you think? <laughs> you know, so like, so that the Christmas after, you know, after the when we people gathered, I'm going to go over to the corner of the room, trying to figure out. Okay, let's uh, do, look at the Q and A. You know, FAQs of the vendors. Uh, can we? check this can you connect this to that i mean oh that's oh it is it's absolutely crazy um i mean it used to be well our electronics used to be simpler i mean you plugged in the television and you know turned on turned on the knob and and boom you got a picture and uh even the cable industry as much as you might hate cable executives and their business practices the engineers wanted to make sure that the service was bulletproof and and most of the time it was but man, I mean, you come into, I don't know, the PC era, and I think especially the smartphone era, all bets were off. I mean, trying to make things, I mean, right around the same time they introduced the the concept of plug and play was right about the same time that stuff stopped being able to plug into each other and play with each other. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, that's the, that's the thing. Recently, I was interviewing Amnam Shashua from Mobileye, and um, the company makes the um, SOCs uh, that go into the uh, uh, ADAS and autonomous vehicles. And when I was interviewing him, he said suddenly uh, this, does any, you know, that, that, do smartphones these days, do they guarantee you anything? No. And I said, what do you mean? Like, do they guarantee that they will up, um, you know, they, they would uh, the download the new operating system or new updates every two weeks? No, we just, uh, we are at the mercy of the uh, Apple or whoever the uh, the device manufacturer to do the, uh, the updates, you know, at their pleasure, right? right? And uh, in the middle of when we are doing something, at least they, they may ask you when to do it. But it's uh, sort of like we are at the mercy of their schedule. And not only that, that wouldn't guarantee the service, as, as Rebecca can tell mm. you, that um, the service she subscribed to, like things like Spotify or any other streaming services, uh, you know, this may work. She signed up a new service on her iPhone, but... Apple iPad thinks no, you can't do this. Right. <laughs> so it's like, a, yeah, it's a, it's 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 a madness. Yeah, I have I have like ancient technology. I've got an old Apple TV puck. Um, my kids made off with the PS4, so I'm back to a PS3 that I'm watching TV on. In some <laughs> some cases, and um, wow, I, I was just I signed up for HBO Max, and I wanted I just wanted to watch HBO Max, and the 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 um, app wasn't available for the PS3, and I can't find it for the Apple TV. But what I can do is I can get it on my Apple iPad. So what I'm doing is I'm bringing my iPad downstairs, um, connecting to the Apple TV wire puck wirelessly, and mirroring. Wow. So I'm I'm bringing the the HBO in on my my tablet and casting it to my Apple Puck and watching it on my TV and I'm like there I am I was so pleased with myself for figuring this out and then I'm like wait a second why do I have to go through all of this <laughs> Yeah that's a yeah there's a story that actually Rebecca wrote 
about setting up a smart lighting system. Oh, yeah. And she was reading FAQs. And uh, one of the users of Alexa, I think, uh, she was trying to figure out the set, the uh, lighting, you know, dimming and lighting mm-hmm. control uh, through mm-hmm. Alexa, right? And she stayed up un- until 4.30 in the morning, tried to figure out how this works. And I'm thinking like, really? I mean, how hard is that to walk over to your light switch <laughs> and dim it or turn it off? I mean, it's, a, it's I think we are kind of obsessed with how we can connect things together. But here's, the, here's, a, here's, here's an advice to the IoT, you know, companies. I mean, they, they, they always... Uh, you know when they they when they come up with the new IoT chips, they have a you know a lot of great talking points, and um, and yet uh, a lot of scenarios that they talk about in in their presentations is kind of like uh, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, <laughs> I was thinking in the back of my head, but also they're wondering why IoT market is so fragmented and why it's not advancing. You know, the simple answer is that you are not making things easy. No. And it's not the chip companies. It's not no. just the chip company's fault. It is a system company's fault. It's a service company's fault. And uh, But also it's consumers who are not uprising to this, uh, <laughs> to, to this inconvenience, in my oh, opinion. Well, I agree. I think um, yeah. a moment ago I mentioned smartphones, and I think uh, – with with smartphones and apps, they brought in the notion of of oh if it's broken, let us know and we'll fix it with a software update later. And I think we got really, I mean, some people were so excited. First adopters in particular seem to get so yeah. excited yeah. about the fact that it's new and and they have it, they're less concerned with the f- whether or not it works or works well uh, because, you know, they, they know that eventually it'll be fixed. Um, and, and that's cool for smartphones. Um, I'm not sure, you know, you know I, don't, I don't really care what you're willing to do on your smartphone. It kind of worries me when I see that model applied to cars. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. What you know, it, it is like car companies really need to guarantee yeah. safety, and uh, that's that's that really the bottom line. But I'm just appalled that consumer electronic companies today are not really guaranteeing anything. I understand it's difficult to guarantee anything, but at the same time, giving it up is causing everybody. It's sort of like, you know, we're stuck in the middle of nowhere that unless you are willing to spend next two to four hours to fix this problem, you're not going to go anywhere. I mean, is that the model that you want to be known for? You know, so you can't imagine consumer electronics without connectivity anymore, which is a good thing. But at the same time, that brought the hell. I mean, it's sort of like hell broke loose, right? I think the same thing is happening. Well, it's not here. Well, Partly, mm-hmm. yes. Same things happening with AI. Uh-huh. See, mm-hmm. just like, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years ago, nobody thought that my consumer electronics products will be equipped with the, any wireless mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. capability. You can't imagine without right. one, right? It's the same thing. The next year, a year after next, you can't imagine a consumer electronics without AI. 
And we that that reality is already here with Alexa uh, and all those other things that uh, put the voice control thing. But then that's where that all those unexpected things right. happen, right? And I think that uh, the, Rebecca has one of those in her columns. Oh, she well. compares uh, Alexa and Siri and uh, maybe Cortana or one of the Google. yeah, Google, hey Google, yeah. and uh, you know to, with with hilariously divergent results. It's uh, exactly. And then one talking uh-huh. to another. Oh, right. You know, like a, I mean, <laughs> so it's, um, it's a farce. <laughs> and I think we're, we're, we're already there. And the problem is then we can't fix it, right. right? I mean, it's like we are at the mercy of whatever Alexa, you know, hey, Google, that we bought the device and we can't fix it. We can't fix AI. What do we do now? Well, luckily, we have Rebecca Day to uh, use herself as a guinea pig to to find out what those problems are and, and ideally pose the questions. Rebecca Day's Living with Tech columns appear weekly on EE Times, usually on Mondays. You can go to our homepage and find them in our section called Perspectives, or we've got links to a selection on the webpage dedicated to this podcast episode. You can find that at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts. The annual Hot Chip Symposium is dedicated to high-performance ICs, and it always attracts the biggest companies in the world who use the opportunity to brag about their most advanced chip designs. Kevin Crewell is an analyst for Tyrius Research who keeps on top of semiconductor technology for EE Times. His most recent contributions include a summary of Intel's recent Architecture Day, which you'll hear us refer to in our conversation coming up, and a preview of Hot Chips. We invited him back to the podcast for his take on whether the presenting companies were meeting expectations. Good afternoon, Kevin. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, you have been busy at the Hot Chips Conference. Oh, attending. You're not at. Nobody's at, at anymore, right? No. You're never at anything. You're only attending or you know, viewing. You you said you had attended the keynotes and lo- along with several of the sessions. What I wanted to ask you first was uh, if uh, there were any revelations or interesting things said during either of the keynotes? Well, I don't know if anything was revolutionary. I mean, uh, Raj Kaduri uh, did the first day keynote on Monday and talked specifically about uh, a topic being no uh, no transistor left behind. And basically uh, talked about how in the future, we're going to have to holistically look at every aspect of uh, chip design and software on top of it to optimize everything to get more efficiency going forward. And the, you know, with the limitations on Moore's law, which, you know, the Intel is more broadly defining as Moore's law is also including packaging and 3D stacking and, and, and such, that uh, there's still gonna be issues. If you really wanna get to the next generation of performance to keep track with the, the growth of data and machine learning models, uh, it's going to require optimizations all across the stack, all the way from the s- silicon to the design, 
to memory, uh, to I.O., and, and to software. So he was kind of trying to put the vision together as this is a full stack optimization problem. Um, and it's not just limited to, you know, making chips faster by shrinking the uh, transistors. Um, and that actually sort of correlated with what the, the second day keynote, which was uh, a presenter from um, Google's DeepMind project. And, um, and he specifically uh, wanted to talk about how the um, problem of machine learning isn't also isn't just chips it's a, a full stack problem as well and it's actually in his case he's saying it's a data center problem that we should really think about uh the solution to machine learning as a whole data center and how to optimize the whole data center for this problem that's fascinating so um intel in particular um took a lot of flack for its um, stumbles with process technology at 10 nanometers and at seven nanometers. Um, and it seems as if it is a legitimate way to look at things that um, process technology is important, but Overall, holistic design is incredibly important. And that's Intel's strength, isn't it? I mean, they've, they've, they're notable for doing R&D that looks out five, 10 years. And, uh, and when they say, you know, yeah, okay, we're, just, we're still working on process technology, but we're also working on this other element as well, that's, I mean, do you find that a compelling argument uh, that, you know, that, that Intel should, uh, should be uh, given credit for? Well, they don't get credit for it. Um, I, one of the topics that came up with uh, the week before at the Intel Architecture Day, Intel has like 15,000 uh, programmers at Intel. And the software side of Intel is extremely important. They're developing a thing called One API which the goal is basically to try to um, uh, unify the software stack across CPUs, GPUs, uh, their, net, uh, their, their uh, uh, Havana neural processing units, uh, and FPGAs, and, and come over to a, whole, a, a, you know, a, a unified stack across all these different devices. And that's taking a tremendous amount of work. And that's, that's really interesting work as well to, to kind of simplify the software view of the world. Intel is also completely committed to the idea of heterogeneous computing. And that includes big cores, little cores, uh, you know, mixing FPGAs and, and, and uh, GPUs with CPUs and, and, and running the workload where it's appropriate. Uh, so they've really embraced this more heterogeneous view of the world. They're, they're not just a CPU centric company anymore. And that's, that's a huge change mm. over the you know last five years or so. Uh, but, and I think this is something that is taking time for the market to recognize, but also uh, Intel is taking it a little bit of time to get this, to, this these technologies to market. There, uh, one of the sessions they talked about their XE graphics. Um, and they talked about it last week and they talked about it again this week. 
and, and that's you know trying to that's going to stretch from mo, uh, notebook computers all the way up to supercomputers. Uh, and it's a, it's a chiplet-based architecture, so they can put multiple chips down on, on a substrate, uh, depending on the performance needs. So they're really embracing all these packaging technologies and chiplet technologies. Uh, it's We just haven't seen the full effect of it yet in the marketplace. So that's, that's coming later this year and into next year. That's their six pillars of, of technology innovation, right? Yeah, that, and it's, part, it's a really important part of that. And... Uh, you know, they actually show it as a concentric ring on uh, none of their presentations as opposed to a pillar. But it's definitely the uh, uh, the future of Intel, and it's been redefined. And they, they're just on the process of executing and delivering this this new vision of performance. Wow. So uh, maybe uh, to paraphrase a, a medieval peasant, they're not dead yet. <laughs> yeah. By, they're not dead by any means. Uh, and that's... Yeah. that's yeah, and it's a, that's an important thing uh, in the industry that uh, that they're healthy because um, you know they are the only integrated uh, manufacturing company in the United States. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. I think their health is still important. Excellent. Uh, so those were the keynotes. Um, yes. The particular uh, any of the sessions you sat in uh, struck you as interesting. Well, you know, there was a lot of uh, interesting sessions. Uh, there were definitely a, a, a tremendous amount of uh, of machine learning mm-hmm. presentations again this year. Uh, you know, the um, probably one of the more interesting one. It, it almost got to the point where I I, I, I would uh, uh, snarkily comment that gee, looks like everybody is making a machine learning chip. Uh, we had a, a couple. Oh, yes. Of, Yes, uh, we had the Google talking about their machine learning chip, uh, Baidu talking about their machine learning, Alibaba talking about their machine learning chip. Uh, but one of the maybe one of the more interesting, couple of interesting things that uh, were were, um, were the uh, unusual architectures. Mm. Uh, you know, I had actually kind of. Uh, when I wrote up uh, for E Times the uh, preview article, I kind of skipped over uh, a a uh, presentation from uh, that was coming from Harvard and their mm-hmm. research into uh, Bayesian uh, uh, solvers for uh, inference. And actually, it has some real potential. It's just uh, Bayesian logic is really hard for people to wrap their heads around. It's it, it's uh, it's it's difficult to to really get people to understand how that how that works, um, and and that's I think one of their problems. The other other interesting presentation was a company called Light Matter, and they're using fil- uh, silicon photonics uh, to do inferencing, and they've got it's a kind of a mix of a MEMS unit with uh, you know lasers, and by using slight twists to a uh, to a uh, channel, they can create differential patterns. So it's it's a uh, uh, another really unusual approach to uh, these problems, and they're trying to do it with the you know very low power, and uh, it, it's you know un- the I think it's sometimes the unusual stuff that was the most interesting. Uh, it's you know uh, trying to do. Uh, silicon photonics and inference on the system with a mix of digital and and, uh, and MEMS um, is a really uh, challenging ap- application. So, 
Does it seem to you that this is um, a lot of innovation uh, because people are trying to find different ways simply to differentiate themselves? Or uh, do some of these, uh, these interesting new architectures uh, promise to do something better than everybody else can? Most of the ones that are trying to do things in, in a different manner are trying to do it because they're looking at low power, ultra low power. Power is one of the major constraints. I mean, you, if you have a data center, you could throw a bunch of, uh, of, of you know, chips at it, GPUs at it, and, and okay. But once you start scaling up to the next generation of machine learning problems, uh, its power becomes a significant constraint. Uh, memory bandwidth as well. So uh, a number of vendors were talking about how to how to fix the memory problem. Uh, but uh, power, I think, was the the number one differentiator uh, that mm -hmm. people were looking at. Uh, so power has been important in, in in data centers forever. I mean, th th those guys look at everything from from you know transistor power to you know how much a, a transistor draws to to how much a, a rack draws, um, so that's that's interesting. Does does, but then you start hearing about edge and endpoint IoT where the processing needs to be exceedingly low power. Are we talking about different scales of power consumption still between? edge and data center or is the data center trying to take advantage of 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 those same um innovations and in power saving that uh that you might see you, you might have er earlier have applied to an endpoint device or to an edge device well it depends on the edge point edge device i mean if you're mm -hmm. at a sensor and and some of these sensors have to be an ex ultra low power so there's an opportunity there for these uh, some innovative uh like uh neuromorphic computing where uh mm -hmm. the power is extremely low and um the the challenge uh in data centers is scale as you're adding a mm -hmm. uh, tremendous amount of of compute to these data centers and uh processing uh it's fitting it fitting it into a you know this gigantic power envelope and and trying to keep scaling that uh, so, I would say right now they're uh, they 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 are not they're complement each other to some extent, uh, mm -hmm. but there are issues with taking stuff from IoT and edge and trying to to uh, network those all together because a lot of the challenges in data center is networking and computing and putting all these these uh, uh, items together and having them talk to each other, um, mm -hmm. whereas in the edge device uh, that's less important. So there are still there are still two very distinct markets, edge and data center. Yeah, I'd still say they're 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 pretty di uh, different from each other. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else that uh, that jumped out at you uh, from your from your peregrinations from from one program to the next? Well, you know, uh, Cerberus uh, presented for the second year in a row, and last year they were the kind of the darling of hot chips because they uh, released the, the first detailed uh, description of their wafer scale engine, which was, you know, a, a 400,000 uh, AI optimized core and a 46 
thousand millimeter squared piece of silicon, which is basically an entire wafer with the edges trimmed off, a rounded part, squared off. I would say squared off is probably the right word. Uh, they pretty much just went through a rehash of what they did in the previous years, but um, they did drop a hint uh, later this year. They're going to release details of their second generation, which has 850,000 AI optimized cores, 2.6 trillion transistors, uh, because it's shrinking into uh, TSMC's uh, seven nanometer process uh, from uh, previously a 16 nanometer process. So, uh, you know, they double the amount of uh, compute on this uh, on the wafer, uh, and uh, it, they've got it up and running in the lab. But we'll see more about it uh, later this year. But that was that was sort of a teaser. I just kind of went through it. There was there was a couple of things like the that were kind of like a rehash of earlier information. I, I, I didn't say there was too much groundbreaking stuff this year uh, uh, like there was last year, uh, but there was still you know enough to keep everybody uh, engaged. Uh, IBM released their Power 10 uh, processor mm-hmm. this year. Uh, that's uh, changed to um, they're using uh, Samsung Foundry and, and seven nanometer for the Power 10. IBM did come back also with uh, the Z15. The the mainframe lives, <laughs> and IBM and it's it's and it's complete. It's you know it runs over five gigahertz, so they've got this deeply pipelined uh, core. They added they squeezed a couple of extra cores into the chip, uh, but they're still in like a, a fourteen nanometer uh, a global foundries process. Uh, uh, but interesting thing they've added, uh, you know, more capability and it, but it's, it's alive. IBM is still developing, uh, mainframe processor. So that was, that was pretty interesting. Um, and then, uh, Intel and AMD, uh, went head to head on their, uh, mobile processors. Um, it's, you know, it, it's a lot of interesting specs, but the key is going to be when they deliver chips to the marketplace. Now, Intel's Tiger Lake looks very promising. Um, that's going to use, uh, you know, we talked about the, the process problems Intel's had. They have a, it's a 10 nanometer process, which they've really started to yield better. But they've added uh, <laughs> what they call Superfin, uh, which is a significant um, process improvement to the 10 nanometer. Uh, and Tiger Lake's the first chip out with uh, with this, and we'll see some extended dynamic range, higher clock speeds, uh, uh, some lower voltages. So uh, Tiger Lake looks to be a really interesting mobile chip, uh, if you know, w- with both the with the XE architecture for graphics um, and uh, and the improved process. So um, you know, I see you know, a lot of uh, you know some incremental stuff. There was a lot of good stuff there. Uh, uh, Microsoft talked about the the Xbox, the Xbox Series X coming, showing their massive GPU mm-hmm. that's going to be in that chip. Uh, so it's it's pretty interesting that uh, you know that this is you know uh, uh, the uh, Microsoft team keeps coming back to hot chips to show their latest chips off. So that's always uh, fun to see. So. All right, thank you for for coming back to the podcast. Um, it's always a pleasure having you here. Well, thank you. Uh, why, one, one another mention: there were two presentations that talked about RISC Five. Uh, they're using one's using RISC Five in a uh, uh, in an edge compute uh, uh, capability. So, uh, and then another one was using it for a machine learning application. Uh, so, uh, the RISC Five uh, ecosystem is moving ahead uh, and and is showing up uh, in more and more chips. So. Um, 
it's, it's uh, definitely a, a architecture to uh, keep a track of. Visit our homepage at eetimes.com daily for the latest news in the electronics industry. While you're there, consider signing up for our daily newsletter, which delivers the headlines right to your favorite device to read on. Ready for our weekly walk down memory lane? Just about every week, we like to celebrate the anniversaries of interesting events in technology history. Today, we're going to set our Wayback Machine to August 20, 1923, when the United States Navy officially launched its first rigid airship. It was called the Shenandoah. By the time the Shenandoah was built, airships had been in use for well over a century. The first untethered hot air balloon voyage occurred in 1793 in France. The first engine-powered balloon flight occurred nearly 60 years later in 1852. Almost 50 years after that, in 1900, Ferdinand Adolf Heinrich August Graf von Zeppelin built the first successful rigid airship. The difference between previous airships and a rigid airship, generally referred to as a dirigible, is that the latter has an internal frame. The first airline company in the world was formed just nine years later in 1909, running a fleet of seven Zeppelins. But then the Great War broke out and Germany commandeered them all. During the war, Germany set its expanding fleet of Zeppelins on bombing raids in the UK. The British and US armed forces resolved to build their own rigid airships. The Shenandoah, the US Navy's first, was monstrous. It was 680 feet long, well over twice the length of a football field, and it weighed 36 tons. At the time, there was a single hangar in the world large enough to cover it. That was in Lakehurst, New Jersey. Lakehurst might ring a bell. We'll come back to. One of the problems with airships up until the Shenandoah was that they used hydrogen gas, which is highly flammable, and several had already burst spectacularly into flame. So when the U.S. Navy was preparing to build its own rigid airship, it decided to use helium instead of hydrogen. The problem with helium was that it was rare and expensive. Filling the Shenandoah nearly depleted the world's reserves of the element. In fact, when the Navy received its second rigid airship, the Los Angeles, in 1924, the Los Angeles had to be filled with helium transferred from the Shenandoah. By the way, the Los Angeles was built for the Navy by the Zeppelin Company as a war reparation. The Shenandoah was designed specifically to fly at higher altitudes. The Navy intended to use it for scouting and for the next two years tested it for such. Then, on a flight in 1925, the Shenandoah was caught in a storm above Ohio and was swept upwards, so high it apparently exceeded the pressure limit of its gas bags, and it was torn apart. Three sections remained intact long enough for some crew members to ride them safely to the ground. Twenty-nine survived. Fourteen others perished, mostly those in the control car. 
The exact cause of the crash was never determined, in large part because looters made off with too much of the wreckage. A few years after the Shenandoah crashed, the Navy built two more larger, rigid airships, the Akron, which first flew in 1931, and the Macon, which launched in 1933. Now, back before that, back in the early 1900s, Britain had pioneered the use of airships as aircraft carriers. So when the U.S. Navy built the Akron and Macon in the 1930s, each carried and was able to launch Sparrowhawk biplanes lowered out of internal hangars by a trapeze that was also used to retrieve them. The Akron was destroyed in a storm off New Jersey in 1933. 73 of 76 crewmen died. The Macon went down in a storm off the California coast in 1935. Most of the crew lived. The Akron and Macon were the two largest helium-filled dirigibles ever built. The largest one, however, was the Hindenburg, which relied on hydrogen. It, too, was built by Zeppelin. The crash of the Hindenburg in 1937 in Lakehurst, New Jersey, is one of the most famous disasters in history. And yet, after the crash, Zeppelin and other airship companies were still prepared to keep building airships. It was just that no one was going to ever build one that used hydrogen ever again. In 1937, the only place that had adequate helium reserves was the United States, however, and the U.S. declined to sell any of it to anyone else. That was the end of the Great Age of Dirigibles. On the website, we've posted a video with newsreel footage of the fallen Shenandoah taken in 1925 and also a recording of a contemporary song about the crash. The original title was The Wreck of the Shenandoah, but in this version, it's titled The End of the Shenandoah. I'd play it for you, but, you know, lawyers. And that is all for the weekly briefing for the week ending August 21st. Thank you for listening. The Weekly Briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned, along with other multimedia. The address is www.eetimes.com podcasts. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.